Hi, this is the Organizational Success Academy from the Oxford Review, bringing you the very latest research in leadership, management, organizational development, design, transformation and change, human resources and human capital, organizational learning, coaching and work psychology from around the world to make you the most up-to-date and knowledgeable person in the room. Today I've got uh, Steve McIntosh, who's the president of the Institute for Cultural Evolution in Boulder in Colorado in the US, um, which I want to come back to and explore a little bit later on. Um, And he's also the author of a number of books, including uh, The Presence of the Infinite, uh, The Spiritual Experience of Beauty, Truth and Goodness, Integral Consciousness and the Future of Evolution, Evolution's Purpose, um, his latest book, Developmental Politics, and he's also the co-author of Conscious Leadership, which is the book that we're going to be talking about, um, Elevating Humanity Through Business. Steve's also a Doctor of Law from the University of Virginia. So today, Steve's here to talk mainly about the issues to do with um, conscious leadership, but I think we're going to be straying into some of the other areas as well. Anyway, welcome, Steve. Um, Thank you. Pleasure to be with you, David. It's an it's an absolute pleasure. Um, I really enjoyed the book, by the way. Um, would you like to just take a kind of a minute just to introduce yourself, what you do, and kind of what led you to this collaboration on conscious leadership? Sure. I'm a writer in the field of integral philosophy, which is a philosophy that focuses on the evolution of uh, human culture and consciousness, really the coevolution of of humanity and history. Uh, and I've been working in this field for about 20 years. I've had previous careers as a, a, um, an entrepreneur, a business executive, a corporate lawyer, uh, but integral philosophy and uh, its impact in the world to try to help evolve culture. Uh, the, the, the main focus right now between myself and the uh, boutique think tank that I'm uh, co-founder and president of, which you mentioned, the Institute for Cultural Revolution, our focus is on overcoming hyperpolarization in the United States, and uh, hopefully, you know, if we're successful there, some of that work might also be helpful in other parts of the developed world that may be not as polarized as the U.S. is currently, but certainly it's a problem that every developed country faces to one degree or another. So, um, yeah, my background is in integral philosophy. I've known John Mackey for, uh, you know, the, the primary uh, leader of, in this book. I've known him since 2013. He's also a big uh, fan of integral philosophy. And it was really um, that field of interest that brought the three of us authors together. Interesting, interesting. Um, So like conscious leaderships, um, one of the newer forms of leadership that's emerged recently, um, along with things like spiritual leadership, and in terms of academic research volumes, I kind of looked this up and I found it quite interesting. And, and it, you know, if you're just starting to kind of, it's just starting to get academics interest. Um, there's roughly about 2,190 research papers published so far. And actually that's really low. For example, spiritual leadership at the moment, there's roughly about 33,600 papers on that. Servant leadership, we're talking about 54,500 research papers. And then when we go to things like transformational leadership, we're talking about 254,000 research papers. So for you, what is conscious leadership? Conscious of what? And how is it different from other forms of leadership? Sure. 
Well, first, it's important to say that conscious leadership is is not an academic book and, and conscious leadership as an approach to business and other forms of leadership uh, is, is really, it, it, it's not a competing type that's a step-by-step program. I mean, certainly it has steps, certainly it has, you know, a, a body. It's not just a, an admonition to be nice, but it incorporates servant leadership and transformational leadership. And, and um, so it's, it's not as if we're trying to appeal to academics with this kind of formal type of leadership. The word conscious itself uh, comes out of uh, progressive culture in the United States, particularly in the natural foods industry, where John Mackey is the, uh, the co-founder and, and uh, CEO of, of Whole Foods Market. Conscious is a lot of the a lot of the brands in the store, you know, conscious, you know, salad dressing, that kind of thing. With the meaning that it's uh, virtuous, that it, that it's it tries to be awake and aware and considerate of larger wholes. Again, we try not to to give a, a tight formal definition of it. Part of it comes from the the book Conscious Capitalism, which um, John Mackey co-authored, which was published in 2013. The word conscious ended up being the the title of that because it it goes well with the word capitalism. Um, we debated, uh, I mean, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, some would question, right. Are those are those, I mean, hmm. the word conscious, the best way to understand how we mean it is simply, uh, more virtuous it, it, that, that the journey, it's a practice of becoming more conscious of, of be focused on your character development, but not just on your own personal development, that it, it's an acknowledgement that your, um, the quality of your, uh, through relationships with other people, uh, the integrity of your actions, um, the nobility of your purpose, all of these things are directly related to your ability to develop yourself. So, uh, you know, as uh, Jesus of Nazareth recognized 2,000 years ago, by their fruits, you shall know them. And uh, the fruits of conscious leadership are really um, companies that are more uh, productive, more fun to work for, uh, have have a, a this philosophy of stakeholder integration, which tries to uh, uh, look beyond um, the self-interest of the organization, all of these things, um, we can talk about some more, but that's kind of a mouthful about what we mean by conscious. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. So, so I, one of the, the senses I got from the book is it's, it's kind of a systems thinking. It's seeing not only the business, but the individuals within the business, all of the stakeholders, and the wider kind of environment, both the commercial environment, uh, the capitalist environment, if you like, but also wider global environment as a whole system and seeing it as a system and being a conscious part of that system and being there to do good within that system rather than um, just take from it, if you see what I mean. And that's the kind of sense that I got from the book. Sure. Well, certainly we're informed by systems thinking. We were all impressed with Peter Senge's book, you know, The Fifth Discipline that came out in the mid-90s. And um, uh, systems awareness and and whole systems thinking is certainly an element of this larger umbrella of integral philosophy that I mentioned at the beginning. But integral philosophy goes beyond what's understood as systems thinking, but certainly uh, uh, this recognition of larger systems and and in a sense, how the business world can be compared to an ecosystem wherein uh, there's an interdependence across the levels, uh, that certainly uh, informs our thinking at every level. 
It's interesting. So you say integral philosophy goes beyond that. In in what way? How do you mean? Well, it, it, it looks at the evolution of consciousness itself. What does that mean for people to evolve their consciousness? Of course, there's many lines of development under which your consciousness could evolve, right? You could learn to play the violin and that would evolve your consciousness. But we also recognize that human history is evolving. And, and what's more evolved doesn't mean that it's absolutely better in every way, but we can certainly see lines of development by which humanity is uh, advancing, by which we can, um, we can claim that these are uh, unequivocally good. You know, that, 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 uh, that a society that has slavery and a society that has liberal values, that one is better than the other, right? A society where uh, women and men are treated equally and there's racial equality, that's a more evolved society than one that's not. So we're willing to, um, we're willing to say what's better, although not in a linear way, not in an absolutistic way, but certainly not in a way that just is relativistic and says everything's the same. So, so we want to improve our definition of improvement itself, you know, and not be Eurocentric, not be overly hierarchical, but at the same time also recognize that um, if we want to make the world a better place, we can't flinch from saying what's better and, and you know, what's less. And that's interesting because what you're actually doing there is that you're, you're situating um, both business but also the being being a person within history, so a history of humanity, I suppose, over sure. time and, and taking a perspective on that, um, how things have developed, how intellects developed, how the way that we're behaving, but also how we operate as a, as a system, both politically, but also in terms of business and personally. Um, sure. And I, I, th I think that's quite important. I think quite often we kind of were so caught up in the moment, we forget to think about the evolution of our thinking, the evolution of our practice. And it can inform so much and, and help us make better decisions, I think, in, in, in the kind of the, the, the long run. Um, one of the things that um, that intrigued me, I suppose, is how both conscious capitalism, conscious leadership, and this idea of the evolution of humanity are connected. So for you, what is the connection between these? Sure. Well, uh, that's an excellent and complex question. I'll do my best <laughs> no, to yes, narrow sorry. it down, right? Um, so when we look at the evolution of human culture, we see uh, a, a way of looking at human culture. Of course, culture is wild and woolly. From some perspectives, it's a sprawling bush of developmental lines, right? But from other perspectives, we begin to understand culture through historically significant worldviews that, that, um, that encompass multiple generations and which, which carry forward values and horizons of improvement, right? And, and the, the, the main worldview that, that kind of defines what we mean is the worldview of modernity, right? Or, or this, uh, this worldview of rational thinking, liberal values, you know, capitalist progress, all of these elements that emerge with modernity and which have improved the human condition immensely, but have also brought new threats, right? Like environmental degradation and nuclear proliferation, right? So, 
So modernity emerged in history, uh, first during the Enlightenment, and although it's changed in many ways, it's not a singular ideology, but it is a worldview that creates a, a specific kind of culture. Like in the US, um, not everyone makes meaning from the center of gravity of the modernist worldview, but it does represent loosely uh, the majority of the population, the, the sort of the mainstream outlook. Uh, and so when we look at modernity and, and we see how it's evolved, we also see how in the last 50 years or so, a kind of an alternative worldview has emerged to try to transcend modernity, right? We call it progressivism or more formally, the, the progressive postmodern worldview, which arose in some ways by pushing off against the, uh, the pathologies and shortcomings of modernity, right? It, it, it defined its values in some way in, in relation to the harm that an unchecked modernity was doing to the world. And, and the, the modernity, I should say, in developmental politics, I go into great detail about how modernity is still related to traditionalism, the, the traditional ancient religious worldview that prevails in various religious forms, you know, in, in major parts of the world, um, that modernity borrows the social capital of traditionalism, the sort of the civilizing fair play that successful traditional societies are able to inculcate. And it uses that moral system, even though it's, you know, rejecting feudalism and rejecting religious hierarchy and authority. Mm. It's still most of the citizens throughout the history of modernity are still informed by the morality of a traditional religion. But progressivism comes along over the last 50 years and emerges as a sort of a competing moral system. That, uh, that defines uh, this horizon of improvement in different ways, and in many important ways, I would say, but because it's arising in what we might call the antithesis of modernity, right? Rejecting modernity and rejecting much of the business world along with it, you know, certainly the business world deserves to be critiqued, right? There, there you know, we, we, we look at many of the depredations of the industrial revolution, right? The Dickensian nightmare of the dark yep. satanic mill that brought about all kinds of critics, not just Marx, but Dickens himself. And since then, I would say that, that working conditions within develop, the developed world have improved significantly, that there have been lots of ways in which capitalism has been, uh, and, and indeed even word capitalism, let me just pause and say that that word has been, in a sense, um, used by the enemies of, of, a, of a, uh, economic freedom to capital to, to characterize it as a sort of a straw man of greed. Um, so we see, from our evolutionary uh, integral perspective, we see modernity as a very important emergence in the structure of cultural evolution. And that we want to revalorize it. In other words, we want to we want to make sure that that progressives who are mainly focused on the the negative externalities of modernity, we'd like to help them appreciate how their progressive worldview is, in a sense, dependent upon the the prosperity and the liberties delivered by modernity. In the same way that modernity is dependent upon uh, the the moral values provided by traditionalism, at least in ideal cases, right? So, so. We, we see the business world and, and this sort of globalized uh, modernization of, of the planet as, as an expression of modernity, which we want to build on and improve. We certainly don't believe that it just needs to be defended at all costs. We're certainly not market fundamentalists. Um, but in order to improve something, you have to appreciate its upside. If you just see it as negative and greedy and something that needs to be crushed, then your ability to improve it, it obviously will be significantly diminished. So we want to see 
uh, a more conscious, uh, if you'll allow me to use that term in a general way, a more morally awake and socially responsible uh, world of business and business leaders. And we see that not only is conscious leadership calling for this, but there are many other uh, uh, advocates of a, of a more evolved form of, of human business relations. Uh, um, we, we could cite many of them. But the point is that we're pro-business, but we want to evolve it. We don't want to defend it. We want to uh, acknowledge the valid critiques that have been made against it, but still uh, uh, suggest that because business is in some ways becoming, uh, increasingly becoming a force for good, we want to continue that trend and develop further, both intellectually and in a popular leadership book, um, how people can think about uh, the, the challenges of, of being a, a moral leader in the face of the um, you know the market pressures, in the face of the irony, in the in the face of the turbulent times in history in which we live, it's not easy. Um, but but an important way that we could be more conscious is to understand these cultural structures more thoroughly, to understand them not just for their negatives, right? So that's part of this uh, cultural intelligence, which I believe we'll talk about. But let me just jump in here and say quickly yeah. what that is. It's this ability to step outside your own particular worldview, whether that's a traditional religious worldview or a mainstream modernist worldview or a progressive postmodern worldview, the ability to recognize that the other worldviews that you likely despise if you're caught in the culture war, that they have both negative externalities and pathologies and very important upsides that are ultimately interdependent in this larger cultural ecosystem. So a big part of being conscious, at least as I define it, is the ability to understand this notion of cultural intelligence and employ it in a way that can help the uh, the organization navigate uh, the difficult uh, cultural times that we're in. Yeah, that's interesting. So, so actually, what you're saying is we're kind of stepping back from the polarization that can occur as people start to look at different systems, and they start to, especially older systems, what they do is they tend to fix on the bad things, the things that they don't like, and then their thinking becomes polarized about that. And in so kind of in research terms, one of the things that you seem to be engaging in here is both a level of objectivity of pulling back from where I'm at, trying to understand how I'm viewing the world, what my view, worldview is, trying to pull back from there to actually see things in a more objective, more evidence-based um, way, but also engage in appreciative inquiry. And, and that, there, that all of those things together start to bring up a, a, a different type of understanding about where we sit in terms of our evolution and in to enable us to kind of guide our way forward rather than just stumbling into it. Is that a fair pricey? Of oh, that's the beginning said? for sure. Uh, mm -hmm. I would say that um, uh, a lot of business leaders, because they're pragmatic, right? They, they don't want to get involved in the culture war, become <laughs> Uh, you know, tools of, of, of hmm. either of the extremes or however many extremes we might identify. But the trouble right now, at least uh, I can speak for America, and I certainly watch the news about what's happening in Britain and, and in Europe, but um, just speaking in terms of America, we have this, um, this intense culture war, right, that's been going on for over 50 years, really, but intensified the, the hyperpolarization, the political polarization of the last 30 years has been significant. 
And as a, as a, um, as a, in some ways, a symptom of that polarization and that culture war, we've recently had to endure the Trump administration, which has, uh, in, in some ways, accelerated history because the people who were spoiling for a fight, in a sense, got it on both sides. And so that the, the this, this, this turbulent time right now and all these demands being placed on business, all of the the uh, cultural warriors who would like to use the world of business as their battleground, understandably, um, they, they the, the, it's a challenge to progressive business people who typically would like to, or many at least, would like to be noncommittal or try to be centrist or try to be just relativist about it. And, and all of those options are increasingly not viable. And part of the reason is with the, the intense polarization um, it's a little bit like if you're trying to find the center of a strong magnet, right? You're pulled to one side or the other. And at least at this time in history, centrism, like used to be possible in America, is really no longer, there's, there's no cultural there there. So, so rather than promote centrism, which is in a sense uh, uh, moving back to the middle of, of a kind of a technocratic modernity, we're suggesting uh, a, a a viewpoint, which it begins as a viewpoint, but leads to a, a a form of cultural identity that it tends to transcend and include uh, progressivism, um, the best of it, while ex- transcending the worst, while including the best. Uh, we call this um, the post-progressive or integral perspective. But but cultural intelligence as as a, a an opera opera an operative way of, of using this perspective, is it something that people need to adopt a new worldview to, to use? What we've tried to do is make the idea of cultural intelligence, which is detailed uh, in the back of the book, it's, it's mentioned in the, the last mm. chapter and included in an appendix. Yep. What we try to do with this viewpoint is, is give, it, give it a handle, make it operational in a way that anybody can use it as a pragmatic tool. Any leader who's interested in not being you know, captured and having their higher purpose devoted to some other higher purpose that they that may only be tangential to their their business's higher purpose. Um, that uh, that ability to be able to navigate that smoothly and and not be um, uh, not be clenched in opposition to any one uh, form of cultural demand. That's a new leadership leadership skill that's just emerging. If, if you Google cultural intelligence, you may see both. Uh, the older definitions of it, which have been promoted by certain consultants or as reviewed in the Harvard Business Review uh, Journal. For them, I would say it's it, the cultural intelligence is more about uh, business manners. Like when, you know, in America, you go to Japan, you're supposed to present your business card by bowing. And I mean, it's more than that, but it's very much about how not to be a provincial, you know, uh, uh, naive person when you're dealing with international business relations. And that's certainly worthwhile. And, and I would say any culturally intelligent person would be aware of that dimension of it. But we take it to a further uh, uh, level where we're talking about recognizing the competing values that are in the different worldviews uh, that, that are that create the marketplace, not only of ideas, but increasingly are roiling, you know, the, the marketplace from products and services. And um, uh, it's it's an ability that, that I, you know, I could give you sound bites to describe it, but it's ultimately something that does take some consideration and some practice, and it takes some self-reflection on how, um, how the world, these competing worldviews, traditionalism, modernity, and progressivism, 
Right now, the, the major proponents of those worldviews see the other worldviews primarily for their pathologies, right? They see religious traditionalism as some kind of mythic fairy tale, or they see progressivism as some sort of, you know, illiberal wokeism, right? Or if you're progressive, you see modernity as simply sort of greedy capitalists who are indifferent or socially Darwinistic, right? So, so this, these negative caricatures that, that, that the proponents of each one of these worldviews, these people who want to fight the culture war, um, the, the, they, they have, in a sense, um, created these blinders where you can't see the downside of yep. your own worldview and you can only see the, the, uh, yep. you, you don't see the, the downsides of the other worldviews. That ability to recognize that, to recognize your own worldview, one of our, um, one of our intellectual influences is the developmental psychologist, um, Robert Keegan. And Keegan oh, yeah. has a method, a simple method that he talks about, what, what he means when he talks about psychological development or what we would call the evolution of consciousness. He talks about the ability to make subject into object, meaning that a worldview that used to have you you can still have that worldview, you can still use it, but you can evolve yourself when you can step outside that worldview and see it from the outside as well. So that that once what was once your entire subject that you had to kind of convert all meaning to fit within the parameters of that subjective awareness by being able to step outside it effectively and seeing it from both perspectives, both in and out, that gives you the ability to, to, to both see how in some ways you're captured by it but also to appreciate why your your intuition uh, may have uh, or your philosophical predilections may have drawn you to that worldview um, uh, in the first place. I mean, it, again, it, it's not about rejecting your values. We're not trying to change people's values as much as we are to expand the scope of what they're able to value, right? We just want to add to their values um, and, and perhaps even um, illuminate these pathologies more clearly to the partisans these different worldviews. Which is what a good educational system would do anyway, is help you to learn how to um, see your own values and question your own values and see whether they're, you know, they're contingent or not. Um, one of the things that I'm finding fascinating about what you're talking about, so from my 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 background. So I'm a psychologist. My interest is to do with uncertainty and how people and organizations deal with uncertainty. And one of the things that kind of comes out of a lot of that research is about paradoxes and how human beings deal or largely don't deal with paradoxes. So that we quite often were as human beings, we're not very good at noticing them. We tend to polarize things and we jump from one one side of the paradox to the other side of the paradox without even recognizing that that's what we're doing quite often. And the centrism that you were talking about quite often, and this is kind of a personal view, can be almost navigation. <laughs> it's like, I, I, I can't cope with this, so I'm just going to sit in, I'm, I'm going to be political and sit in the middle of, sit in the middle of all of this. And I'm not suggesting that's what everybody's trying to do, but it, from an emotional point of view, it can actually be a kind of a, a mechanism for trying to deal with this, as opposed to what you seem to be describing of that um, kind of metacognitive state. Um, and we're talking here about levels of abstraction and being able to see ourselves, see ourselves in the system, see the system, be able to progressively move out, 
but still hold on to everything that's in there. And one of the things that we, certainly a, a lot of the research that I've been involved in around paradoxes, is that ability to be able to hold at the same time both sides of the paradox and firstly see it, hold both things as saying both of these can be true, even though they're paradoxical. Now then, how do we work within that in a way that actually moves us forward without actually flipping from one thing to another, which is kind of the thing that we seem to be kind of describing that's typically going on. Um, And certainly you see it politically. Yes, yes. Well, I'm glad you mentioned paradoxes. That's one of the terms, or at least there's an overlap between that term and um, one of the toolkits that we use in the book. We have these little leadership toolkits Mm. at the end of some of the chapters. And one of them is on um, a a management technique that's popular here in the U.S. called polarity management, right? (laughs) And so the idea there is sometimes within the academic, there's an academic battle going on right now within the organizational development consulting world of, of, of folks wanting to make their academic careers by defining a new academic area in in the area of business leadership. And so they're calling it paradox studies, right? So we just have the Oxford handbook of, Paradox Management, or some title like that, that just came out, and yeah, and they leadership. <laughs> yeah, they 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 incorporate a lot of the uh, these polarity management consultants in in the contributors to the anthology, and and I have written quite a bit about polarity theory uh, in my philosophy work, and it applies directly to the conscious leadership. I would say a lot of it has to do with understanding that that. Things which are valuable, things which attract both our self-interest and our greater than self-interest have what might be called, at least by analogy, energetic properties, right? They motivate us. They draw us. They, they, uh, they create demand. They create desire, right? These, these, this, but the values are not static, or they're not simply objective. We've known that since Plato, right? So, but, but the, that understanding um, the, the way value energizes individual psychology, the way it energizes human organizations, the way it creates political will, is a newly emerging field, right? So what we might even try to begin to recognize is, is a, you know, by loose analogy, a physics of value or, or an examination of the energetic properties as it relates to uh, the motivation of individuals and the motivation of organizations and groups. And when we look at that, those energetic properties, one of the things we begin to discover is that when it comes to, especially the more intrinsic the value, that that value is, in a sense, its value-creating proposition is linked to a complementary value. So the good example would be real and ideal, right? Being a realist creates value, but a certain, you know, idealists are needed to imagine how we can make things better. And ideally, those two value-creating concepts or approaches or perspectives are in a relationship of, of ideally, um, challenge and support, right? Whereas idealism needs to be challenged with realism if it's going to be effective, right? But the same way, realism could become cynical if there's not some idealism challenging to keep making things better. Um, We can also say the same thing about liberty and equality. Right, like the, 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 any one of these poles, part of the, the physics of this these value circuits, if you will, is that the the 
one pole without the influence of the other can become pathological, right? So another value polarity that's very useful for leaders to understand is competition and cooperation, right? That I would say that that is a, a permanently recurring or, or um, indestructible form of value relationship where, whereby co cooperation without any individual excellence, without any uh, incentive to try to, you know, uh, make things better and with individual initiative, that can become groupthink. It can become stat static and pathological. Likewise, competition without any sense of larger whole or, or, or constraining uh, agreement can become dog-eat-dog. -dog. It can become pathological in its own way. But in, especially in an organization that values performance, recognizing that these two forms of value creating approach really ideally need each other. They need to be in this deliberative or relationship of, of challenge and support. And so this is highly abstract and conceptual, but it, it becomes very pragmatic quickly when we understand the challenges of paradoxes, as you say, uh, you know, the simple paradox between the building and the protecting functions of an organization, right? The paradox between accounting and, and marketing, right? That, that, that these ideally need to recognize that they're mutually interdependent. And if they're fighting with each other, I mean, there a certain amount of, of challenge, a certain amount of tension or opposition can be very important to this, to the working of the, this, this value system, but without also a degree of support, then that, um, that challenge becomes, um, uh, you know, it pushes the, the, the poles apart as opposed to leaving them in this relationship of, of uh, creative tension. Well, tension actually creates a gradient and it creates energy. It also creates the, the place where things like innovation, creativity also come from, and, and, and it, it's critical. And quite a lot of organizations um, try to get rid of tension. Um, and uh, 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 trying to create a kind of a, a, a place of status quo or a, a place where everything's fairly comfortable and things can just happen, whereas w without recognizing the importance of, of, of tension, which is... Right, well, in, that's in, the bureaucratic impulse of conformity and stability, which in some ways is the enemy of a conscious organization and a creative enterprise. Um, it's yeah. something that needs to be guarded against. I mean... Not every um, thing we can think of has a positive, positive polar relationship. It really, it, it, that, this is a behavior that we only see with, with intrinsic values and, and things which are directly related or, or within the purview of that positive, positive relationship. There are plenty of what we might call polarities or paradoxes that are good and bad. And that's more of a problem to be solved, right, as opposed to a system to be managed. And um, so telling the difference is part of the practice of uh, polarity management or conscious uh, leadership or cultural intelligence. So uh, just a, a kind of a challenge here about this idea of conscious leadership. Is it not just a, a kind of a call for people to be more aware, more conscious, or is it is conscious leadership really a thing? Well, sure. There's um, conscious capitalism. Right, um, the book which John Mackey co-authored, Raj Sodia, which came out in 2013, yep. has some tenets, and, and it's fairly systemic. It's not simply a, a call to be good, like I said, 
Um, there are the four tenets of conscious leadership as they were laid out in that book and as they were worked out over uh, 30 years of developing the, this um, Whole Foods market and, and as well as my leadership and business experience and Carter Phipps, our co-author, his experience. Um, these are, are the, the four tenets. Let me just tick them off, right? So there's a higher purpose, which means that, that it's not just a mission statement or something idealistic that is just on the wall and nobody really pays attention to. Conscious leadership's uh, uh, putting this idea of put purpose first, like the first chapter of conscious leadership, emphasizes how wherever there's an exchange, wherever there's a voluntary exchange, there's value being created. And wherever there's value being created, then there's some intrinsic connection that, that that value can be associated with or traced back to. And that intrinsic making the world a better place, the goodness of that, is really the higher part of, of the purpose, which serves as a kind of energizing force within the organization, right? Everybody, these, these Maslowian needs for self-actualization are something that everyone needs, regardless of their level of personal achievement, I would argue. And, and being able to, uh, um, to, to let's, let's call it metabolize the energy of, of an authentic higher purpose gives, uh, uh, fulfills the self-actualization needs while also fil fulfilling you know, the lower levels of Maslow's hierarchy for people who work in companies. So this, the, the, the idea that every human organization needs to find and work with its higher purpose to make sure that everybody in the organization and not just everybody within it, you know, the employees or the investors, but also the people who are the stakeholders of the organization. So higher purpose is the first tenant. Second uh, tenant is stakeholder integration. And, and that's been worked out by Ed Freeman of the University of Virginia. That's, he's done quite a lot of academic work on stakeholder theory. It's still developing. There's still aspects of it that are aspirational. But the idea is that, um, you know, not only are you concerned about your investors, the sort of Milton Friedman idea of what the business's purpose is, but you're concerned about everyone the business comes in contact with flourishing. And this isn't, again, some idealistic greenwashing. It's, it's really uh, uh, it's something that, that conscious leaders do their best to take to heart, right, even in the face of the irony. Uh, and that means that, that your stakeholders are certainly your investors, right? Certainly your employer, your employees, but also the, the larger community, also your suppliers, right? Also uh, the environment, right? Every, every element of the world that your business impacts is a stakeholder and working to make decisions and, 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 and uh, implement policies that take the interests of these stakeholders into account Right, seeking a uh, what what John Mackey likes to refer to as win-win-win. Right, it's not just the win-win of of two people who agree in a in a business transaction, but there's a larger win, a win for the larger society, or a win for the environment, or you know, a win for the general public who may not be the customers right of the business. So uh, this this um, larger conception of of uh, stakeholder integration and who the stakeholders of the business are isn't just good for uh, for having integrity and, and using being a virtuous leader. It's also good for the brand. It's good for the bottom line of the mm. business. And while if you if you undertake it merely for instrumental purposes, then it, it the, the cynicism behind that will eventually show. You've got to actually take it seriously and believe in it with your heart, 
in order to make it happen. Um, part of it is, and this is something that John Mackey has taught me, is that when it, when it comes to seeking win-win-wins, you're always dealing with a, a transactional compromise, right? There, it, inevitably, it seems like, okay, in this situation, it's, it's give or take. And there's a, there, a win on one side means a, a loss for the other. And, and what he recommends is that it's, it's almost like a, um, a, a way of seeing, like a, a, a perspective that looks to go beyond the, the, the give or take and, and tries to think of something that's, that's new and better. Now, the examples, the sterling perfect uh, examples of this are few. I mean, many of us could say there's plenty of situations where there was a business deal and everybody came out better, including you know, the employees and the public. Um, oh, and then sometimes we could say there's a third thing that's created. So, for example, if if you're if you're a phone maker, right, in 2005, and and you're you're trying to decide between price and quality, right, that's a sort of a trade-off mentality. But then we have the iPhone, which is like a third thing, which is certainly more expensive, but it's a whole new category. It breaks the category of this give and take or win and lose, and and creates a win-win-win for everybody and and people that weren't even thought of by creating whole new industries and whole new forms of, uh, of business and culture. So this idea of win-win-win, it, it's a very important, it's, it's a, it's a op- operationalization, there I said it, <laughs> a, w- a way of taking a handle on stakeholder integration and putting it in colloquial terms that uh, leaders on the ground can think about when they think about how they're dealing with other people or how they're making business deals. And then the other two tenants, are, I mentioned higher purpose, I mentioned stakeholder integration, and there's also conscious leadership, which is what the book, Conscious Leadership, really is about, in other words. Uh, and then the, the fourth one is conscious culture, you know, having a culture where people are working with these principles of higher purpose and win-win-win. And so w- the, when conscious capitalism came out in 2013, um, John was on the circuit. He talked to a lot of people. And one of the questions that he uh, got most frequently was, you, you have the chapter in there about conscious leadership, but we'd love to know more. Right, the, this field of leadership is an in, seemingly inexhaustible category in the publishing industry. People just can't get enough of it. And so he was asked about it and uh, thought that he, he really um, needed to write a book about that. And so he uh, suggested that, that myself and Carter Phipps, the three of us joined forces to write the book to make it both accessible and useful to the average business person, uh, the average Which business leader. But also with some creative new ideas and some intellectual integrity and, and, a, and a sort of a loose connection to the integral philosophy that the three of us share. Mm. Yeah, I think what I because what, what I'll just go to the, the, the first of those um, ideals about um, a higher purpose. So um, I think quite a lot of people in business, uh, quite a lot of leaders, uh, but employees within organizations feel that their purpose is just to get the next task done and to get home um and and there there comes this question of right okay so what are we talking about here about a higher purpose and how how on earth do we move from this position of my job is just my my purpose is just to get through the day and to get this thing done and to get home into something that actually starts to move cultures, that starts to move business into a more useful, societally and globally useful place. 
I don't know sure. what do you think. Sure. Well, the the higher purpose is, is it's subtle, right? You could have the most uh, finely crafted and relevant higher purpose that you isn't in your purpose statement that goes on the wall or on your letterhead or something. And if it's not um, if, if if it's not infused in the organization and demonstrated daily by the leaders of the organization, then it, it's it's you know does it's it's not really a higher purpose or it's not the practice of higher purpose as we describe it and recommend it in the book. Um, again, the finding of the higher purpose is, is, is a, it, it's a, a process, ideally, which an organization will go through. Uh, I mean, I think it's leadership 101 that you don't want to just be reactive. I mean, certainly some days you're just trying to be reactive and get, get to the end, or, or you're just trying to deal with the crisis. But even when you're in crisis mode, if you've done the work beforehand, of, of doing a you know a weekend leadership retreat and following that up, or you know having a what uh, Keegan I mentioned calls the deliberately developmental organization, right? Where people in the organization are that that, that the one of the purposes or one of the ways that the organization attempts to be a, a conscious organization is by constantly developing the people, both in their professional ability and and, and promoting them within the organization. But also looking to the extent that it's appropriate and people are willing at other kinds of character development um, that that can be appropriately associated with with the enterprise and its training. But the higher purpose is um, it's it's really the guiding light. It's the idea that the business is um, is connected to a greater than self interest, right? And, and I mean not just the interest of the organization or not just the interest of the investors. Or not just the interest of the employees, right? The interests of uh, uh, of all the stakeholders that the business touches. The higher purpose is to make uh, the the organization focus on the intrinsic good that's at the bottom of its activities, and and that's including the stakeholders yeah. who don't even know that they're stakeholders. Is the point of this? Certainly. Well, uh, in other words, it, it, the stakeholders, in, the people in academia. Who see the business world with a jaundiced eye, right? Some of the more progressive academics who see capitalism, um, you know, and, and economic freedom, which I would rather prefer to talk about it because I think economic freedom could be compatible with a Scandinavian-style welfare system, right? So the, the economic freedom is 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 a, is a much better way of talking about it because you you can locate it among the liberal values of modernity, which are a major emergence in human history and which we need to preserve, right? There's no real freedom without some degree of economic freedom. So those who would decry capitalism because they look at certain rogue actors or certain, you know, the, the perhaps the, the 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 level of the business world, which is at this form of culture I described, modernity, right? Modernity's um, 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 emergence from one moral system as the traditional moral system loses its authority as the progressive moral system attempts to sort of fill that vacuum with an alternative moral system. And there's this tug of war, um, at least in America, um, on the modernist mainstream about which kind of morality they want to have, have allegiance to. But from our perspective, from the perspective of cultural intelligence, both are necessary, right? That we need progressive values to be a more caring and moral country, that we need uh, traditional values to make it to, to inculcate fair play and a, a sense of duty and honor self-sacrifice, these values are not incompatible from the perspective that sees them in a developmental trajectory in history and recognizes that they're an interdependent part of a larger interdependent cultural ecosystem. 
um, that gives us the ability to, to, to recognize how the higher purpose ideally ought to be informed by all three, if not more, of these value systems. Again, if we, if we want to have a more conscious company, we have to become more conscious as leaders. If we want to be more conscious leaders, one of the most direct and effective ways that we can do that is by expanding the scope of what we can value. And cultural intelligence, as we describe it in the book, and as I describe it in greater detail in my other books, uh, is, is um, um, it's a practice, it's something pragmatic, and, and it, does, uh, it does have both a handle you can use immediately, but it opens up into a, um, a, a, a direction of personal development, which is um, a, a lifelong pursuit and, and um, something that you know, is, is my higher purpose. Yes, yeah. I, I, I find the whole thing fascinating, actually, of, of moving from not just the inner game of personal development, but actually moving out into cultural awareness, but uh, um, uh, uh, cultural intelligence, as you put it, um, into the connecting these um, ideals, ideas of um, having a a purpose that goes beyond just transactional, a, a transactional purpose into sure, sure. Kind of the way doing good in the world. About it, I mean, in American politics, at least, there's there's really hardly any common ground left. Like trying to find yes. common ground. <laughs> is a little bit like approaching it like it's a bad marriage and we just need to get them into counseling and realize that they're in this together and they just need to compromise. Well, that sounds good, but it, from our perspective, from a developmental perspective, that's um, a wrong strategy. Rather than seeking common ground, we're trying to stake out higher ground. And we claim that it's higher because it's, it's, it's this overview perspective that can recognize the interdependence that's impossible to see um, without this overview. And uh, and so that's that's a, a big part of what we understand to be um, uh, this practice of conscious leadership. And it's a good it, it's a good strategy, actually, because as you kind of move, move up in levels of abstraction, it's quite often easy to start to get a get agreement as we start to move up in, in levels of structure. Sure. And, and if a lot of leaders recognize their duty to be, you know, good leaders is to be personally developing. Right. That's almost like a a cliche now in the business world. So what we try to do is say, yes, personal development, absolutely. Every leader, if they're going to be a responsible and, and in, the, in the moment leader, they want to be doing that. But that, that your individual consciousness is tied up with the culture of which you're a part, both the culture of your company and the larger culture to which you identify in the society at large, within the media landscape and political landscape. So understanding that if we're going to make business a greater force for good in the world and, and overcome those who, who criticize it for good reason, uh, then we need to evolve not just our personal awareness or our personal consciousness or our personal character. We need to work with the larger cultures that we uh, are a part of and actually begin to understand that it is possible to think in terms of cultural evolution. And this is not an imposition. Again, we're just trying to expand the scope of what people can value, uh, and that's a, a that's a sort of gentle persuasion. It's certainly not social engineering or any kind of political coercion, um, but we do believe this is the key to not only making the business world a better place, but also um, uh, the society as, at large. There's a lot of stuff <laughs> in this because what 
we're asking leaders to start to look at is themselves, their impact on other people, the other people, the system that we're in, the um, the purpose of the organisation that they're they're leading and developing, how it sits within society, how it sits within the system of the planet, I suppose, um, and that's a lot. In, it, it requires quite a wide cognitive bandwidth, I suppose, to be able to kind of engage on, because you, it's not just engaging on one thing, it's moving from inside the individual right out to massive global uh, issues. You know, we're, we're just in this conversation, we're, we're, we're talking about political systems, for example, but there are lots of other systems, uh, food systems, it just goes on and on and on. Sure. And how, what I'm interested in is how can you go about convincing leaders who've got a day job to actually engage in something that requires a significant, as I say, a significant cognitive bandwidth to, to even start thinking about? Well, first of all, the, the, the People have to care about their leadership. They have to care about their performance, right? If, if even just for the immediate stakeholders, right? And that is, if you love your customers, you love your investors, you love your employees, or at least you care about their welfare. That means that in order to be an effective leader, in order to, to demonstrate that care and to do the good that you can do for those people, that of course is tied up with your own self-actualization. But in terms of the overwhelming demands of being a conscious leader, where that's why we wrote a very popular business book that, or at least, you know, accessible, let's put it that way, a business book that um, is designed to uh, help people eat the elephant one bite at a time, right? If you'll pardon the cliche, right? What does that mean, right? And in other words, well, okay, higher purpose. Let's think about that. You know, I, I may have thought, I may have a mission statement, but how can we bring that mission statement alive, right? Lead with love. What does that mean? You know, what are the what are the the different elements of you know gratitude and acceptance and without being Saint Francis, right? I mean, we're we're all humans, and and being a leader is a tough job, especially in a demanding economy and, and you know in a rough yep. business world. And and people that you may be stakeholders may think that you're soft for having a conscious leadership perspective, and that that gives them a license to take advantage of you, right? So, so obviously these things need to be integrated in, in, in a way that, that is aware of these larger forces that again, works this polarity of real and ideal that I talked about, right? So the conscious leadership book, it's very idealistic, but we've tried to connect it back to the real. We've tried to make it um, uh, operational for, for leaders who have their hands full and who don't have time to go on a 30 day silent retreat to consider their consciousness, right? Um, but at the very least, if you're leading an organization, the, the duty, you know, just the basics of leadership competence is to be able to stand outside of your day-to-day, -to, -day, to not be in a reactive mode all the time, to think long-term, to think strategically, to think about uh, things that you normally aren't in your awareness in the pressing day-to-day -day concerns that you have, and conscious leadership, as well as many of the, many of the other different forms with different quality, I'll admit, but but there are many different ways that those who are in the field of leadership are trying to describe what a better leader is. And certainly some of these idealistic conceptions 
enter into what it means to be a better leader, even if your main concern is just operational excellence. Yeah, and, and also the question of what kind of world do I want to be part of? And what sort of world do I want to be helping to promote and create? And that I've got a, the sense that I've got agency within that within that process, I, th- I think is, is kind of a, an important perspective in this. Sure. Yeah, that, uh, uh, and, and the other thing is, I think, for, for, for leaders or anybody listening is that as our awareness expands, as we become um, more conscious, we become more conscious, we have greater latitude to become more aware to become, and it's an increasing process. And I, I think John talks about an emergent process, the conscious sure. leadership's an it's emergent It's like exercise, process. right? The more you exercise on a regular basis, the easier it is. And when you're yeah. first getting started, it's hard. You have to use a lot of willpower to drag yourself to do it. But sure. after a while, you know, there's a momentum and you just do it as just, you know, in course because it makes you feel good. It's, it's intrinsically valuable for its own sake, but it also makes you a, uh, a healthier human. Yes, yeah, and 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 it starts to develop a series of habits that then just kind of get their own energy and start going sure, themselves. Sure. I mean, without when actually we when we were kicking around titles for conscious leadership, one of the titles that we liked, the publisher didn't like it, but the the, the title of Twelve Virtues of a Conscious Leader, right? And and virtues, are this idea of character development, one of the ways they've been characterized is habits of the heart. And so the, 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 the way of, of talking about these practices of stakeholder integration and higher purpose, these are, in a sense, habits of the heart that can be practiced and inculcated and made part of your psychic muscle memory, if you will, um, so that when the, the shit hits the fan and you're under big stress, these will come naturally. They'll just be habituated into how you act. It's who, who you are, who you expect yourself to be. Uh, if you expect yourself to be a conscious leader, when you're tempted by uh, the, the, you know, outrageous fortune, uh, then you'll be able to perform under pressure in a way that has long lasting integrity, which is ultimately has to be the best way to deal with any crisis, uh, um, regardless of how it may seem in the present. And there's certainly a lot of research evidence to back that up. That, yeah, um, you know, you, you, you look at the way that the... The military, the emergency service, and things train for disasters, train for crisis situations. Is it gives you greater latitude and an ability to be able to be adaptable in those situations? If you just suddenly plonked in it and you you haven't built up that muscle, as it were, right. um, and the way of thinking and the way of being being able to um, work your way, be able to see it clearly first, and then be able to develop maps through the situation, it, that creates greater levels of adaptability. So if you decide from the beginning, let me just add that if you decide from the beginning yeah. that you're going to do the right thing, now that might not always be evident, right? What that is, I mean, there's only complexity, but if you know that you're going to try your best to see what the right thing is and do it, it makes yeah. leadership a lot less complicated. Right? You don't have to, to scheme and think and plot. You're just going to do the right thing, come what may. And, and yeah. the, that is the best way to navigate through difficulties, um, mm-hmm. even if it means you need to start over, uh, ultimately dedicating yourself to leading with integrity, as, as we say in chapter three, um, is, is it's the best strategic strategy, the best instrumental strategy, regardless of its intrinsic worth. 
Yes, definitely. And I, I could talk about this all day. Um, so I've, I've, I've got kind of a, a, a kind of almost final question here. So the Institute of Cultural Evolution, what is that? It's a, like I mentioned, it's a boutique think tank founded in 2013. The headquarters are here in Boulder, Colorado, where I live, but the, the directors and the senior fellows and the people who are involved in the organization live in various parts of the U.S. Our main focus as a think tank is to uh, help America grow out of its hyperpolarization, right? That, that is, we, it, as we describe in detail on our website, culturalevolution.org, and in our books, um, that, that the hyperpolarization that is um, creating significant dysfunction in American politics and society is the result of cultural evolution. It's, you know, that our societies become stretched out through growth and that this points to further growth as, as the, the really the only solution to this um, wicked problem. So we, we advocate for that. Uh, I mentioned this idea of uh, a post-progressive politics, right? A politics that's not anti-progressive, but that is able to stand outside the progressive worldview and see it for good and bad and see how it can be harmonized and resolved and, and, and made more congenial and, and in interdependence with the other forms of established culture that it currently rejects and challenges. So this think tank, we do, uh, we're, we're in 2021, we're launching this post-progressive project, which will include a, a media hub, We'll expand the number of senior fellows. We hope to influence the media. It's really a politics of culture. Once we can build a, a more visible political movement, then certainly we hope to have influence on uh, political leaders. But at this point, um, we're, we're, we're trying to create a, a home for the politically homeless. Those who don't want to embrace the right, but have a hard time um, fully identifying with progressivism, we, it's not an all or nothing proposition. Uh, this post-progressive perspective that we advocate includes those who are more oriented toward the right and more oriented toward the left. So there's still plurality, um, but it's it's within a context wherein these uh, inevitably recurring sides, like that I talked about polarities being indestructible. Well, the polarity of people who want to fix what's wrong and those who want to preserve what's right, we that keeps showing up in every human polity. So that's an indestructible polarity. But we can we can rather than thinking that one side is going to permanently vanquish the other, it's better to work with that polarity and recreate it at this level of higher ground that I described, which is what this post-progressive project uh, of building a political movement within a new agreement space and a new perspective on culture, um, that's what we're about uh, at the moment. Fascinating. Really fascinating. Brilliant. Um, so last year, two books. Well done. Yeah. That's no mean feat. Um, so yeah. what next for you? Well, uh, the, the, the building of the Institute for Cultural Evolution. We just hired a mm -hmm. high-powered uh, executive director. I remain the president of the organization, but we're going, we now have some funding and we're seeking more funding to help build this political movement and this, this inclusive perspective. We want to be even more inclusive than progressivism by not just including those who've been marginalized or oppressed, but including the people who think differently from us and integrating the values of traditionalism, modernity, and progressivism into a larger whole. So building this organization um, and, and helping to, to create the, the visible public movement that it stands for is, is what's next, and I'm pursuing that with um, 
with as much uh, passion and energy as I can right now. Yeah, which sounds like a lot. Conscious politics, by the sounds of it. Yeah. Next book. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, Thank no, you so much, Steve. For a while. <laughs> <laughs> For a while, I know. Yeah. It it's, yeah. takes a lot of energy, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, fantastic. I've really enjoyed this, Steve. Thank you so you. much I've, for your I time. Too. I really appreciate it. I look forward to seeing it. And um, thanks again for your interest. So where can people find you and the Institute if they're interested? Sure. Well, the Institute's website is culturalevolution.org, right? Or you could just Google Institute for Cultural Evolution and we'll be available. Um, yeah, my work as an author is at uh, stevemackintosh.com and people can see videos and, and read excerpts from my various books and get a sense of my body of work there. Um, but the Institute for Cultural Evolution is where I'd love to point people to first and invite them to sign up to our email list to receive updates on what we're up to. And um, if they're so moved to become sustaining members of our fledgling political movement. Brilliant. Yes, I, I, I think it's something that's needed, not just in America, but globally, um, looking at some of the things that happen politically. <laughs> that's brilliant. Thank you so much for your time, Steve. I, I've really enjoyed that. Thank you. Okay, great. Me too. Thank you for listening to the Oxford Review podcast. For free research briefings, audio and video research briefings, research infographics and a whole lot more, visit oxford-review.com. That's oxford-review.com. And please subscribe, rate and review this podcast. It would mean a lot to us to have your feedback so that we can make this podcast even better for you. (laughs) 